the first book of Corinthians, um, reading verses 9 to 13. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Divisions in the church. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you should be in agreement and that there should be no divisions among you, but that you should be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Jesus Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? The second reading is the first book of John, chapter 3, reading verses 16 to 24. Love one another. We know love by this, that it is laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will measure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we, seek, we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit that he has given us. Thanks be to God for his word. So I'm just going to read a little bit from before this passage, just a couple of verses, um, to give this context. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. It's quite a strong context that this passage about love your brother and sister sits in. It's a quite strong admonition of, of whoever hates a brother or sister is a murderer. 
Like when I read that, I was like, oh, it's a little strong. But I think the author's point is that love is not this abstract idea. It's not just this fluffy word that we throw around. It requires action, it requires volition, it requires a desire to move with it. And so we have Cain held up as the embodiment of what hate is. And then Jesus held up as the embodiment of love. One the murderer, one who goes to the cross to sacrifice himself. And we might be mistaken when we first read this passage or hear it to think that this is the perfect passage for your community's minister to preach on. Going out, loving, showing your love through action. But on close inspection, we realize that this passage is not about loving the people out there. It's about loving each other. About loving ourselves. About being a community that is connected together. It was a really important aspect for the early Christians and their communities that they show love and support for their own members. For them, charity for the world around them lay in the future. It was more important on a pragmatic reason for survival as well as anything else, that they loved one another and cared for one another. And this call, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister and yet refuses to help? And then at the literal translation, it talks about shutting off the emotion, about shutting that person out. Almost literally, the gut was seen as the seat of your emotion, so you would shut off your, your guts to this person. It's a deep, emotive expression. I think the author is not just telling them that they have to be active in their love, but also the motives behind it, that you need to be a vessel and a, I guess almost like a, a, a way of God's love to flow through. That you must, must be that thing that comes down and transitions that love out. It's not just the action that is important, but it's the attitude too. Because to shut off this compassion for our brothers and sisters, for our fellow Christians, for those within our community, for our other siblings, is an act of disobedience. And all who hate their siblings, their family, are murderers. And this juxtaposition is, is extreme. I think now we live in relative, especially here in the UK, we live in this relatively, well, we, a very comfortable existence as Christians. We might get 
looked down upon or laughed at or told not to wear our crosses at work. But generally, actually, we have great freedom and great privilege. So we don't need to worry so much about this love to, for our survival. On a pragmatic level, we're not, we're not persecuted, we're not having to hide each other and to keep each other's secrets. But actually, I believe for the church's survival, we need to take this direction seriously. We need to take this commandment to love deeply serious. That we need to have love and unity and be of one mind with each other. And this might be a very uncomfortable message for us Baptists who are all about dissenting and disagreeing. You get three Baptists in a room and you have 20 opinions. It's, it's not an easy place for us, those of us, and especially I'm thinking today, this, this passage as we go towards our church meeting this afternoon, which is a space for disagreement to discuss, to debate. And so I wonder if this unity and this love for us is not simply about giving away wealth, as it seemed to be for this early church community. Although I do obviously advocate to give to the church in the hardship fund. I'm going to drop that one in there. Because clearly wealth is not a sin. And we ought to do what we have been enabled to do. But if it's not wealth, if this challenge for us is not about wealth, what is it for? Perhaps it's for patience, for compassion, a call to compromise, to let go of our own agenda, even our own taste. Because the issue is whether the love flows through us in a way that produces fruit. Because if there is no fruit, then it suggests that there was no flow of love in the first place. And arguably, I would say as a church, again, you could look at us, you could look at our activities, and you could say, well, clearly, we've got fruit. Clearly, we are living out the gospel. Clearly, we are doing and acting in a way that is producing fruit. And I don't disagree. But I come back to the, the point of it is our attitude and our reasons for doing it that are almost more important. Is the fruit that we produce nourishing others or nourishing us more? Our egos, our sense of guilt. Or is it actually nourishing the people around us? This message, this theme of unity, of togetherness is repeated throughout a lot of Paul's letters. I particularly picked this one this morning because I like the idea, like, well, I don't like the idea, but the, the image that he talks about with the carving up of Christ's body was Paul's sacrifice for you. One commentary was talking about the idea of birdsong being this beautiful thing that they listen to every morning, but 
you realise actually birdsong is massively territorial. It's basically a little bird saying, get off my branch, this is my branch. You don't belong here. Sounds beautiful. The message, not so much. And these little birds sing out of fear because their place in this world is precarious and they feel unsafe. And so they have to guard what is theirs to find safety. And Paul gets these little birds singing in his ear. He receives letters and messages about how all his churches are doing. And then there's the Corinthians. I love the Corinthians. I think I've said it before, but if there, is, if there was a church in the early church that did it wrong, they did it first. They're like set up to be how not to do it. But what's encouraging is Paul's love for them does not diminish with his frustration at their mistakes. And God's love for them does not diminish with their mistakes. And at this particular point, you have this Corinthian church who are, they've got to a point where they're, they're saying, oh, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollo, or I follow Jesus. We've all had that, haven't we? Like, someone come up to you and go, I'm going to tell you what Jesus really thinks. Standing here is a huge responsibility not to do that. I don't want to impose my view of Christianity upon you for fear that you may feel that you don't belong here. So we have this Corinthian church. The context, again, of this church is everything. So this church is looking backwards. Corinth was a proud city. It was a Roman city on Greek soil. It was intellectual. It, had, it was the place to be if you were a, a traveling speaker to go and to, to share your knowledge, your intellect. And these famous philosophers or speakers would turn up and, and the whole town would turn up to listen to them and then debate, debate them afterwards. And you see the church falling into this same pattern. Which is understandable. It's the context that they've all lived in. This is what you do. You, you, you prefer this, this speaker to that one. Arguably, that is not a problem that only the early church have. Any church that has more than one minister that preaches. I mean, I know that some of you like the way I preach. And I know that some of you prefer Simon. And obviously, we are all going to miss Ruth when she goes. And we will. There is always going to be that temptation for comparison. And that's what hap is happening in Corinth. And Paul doesn't want them to fall into this trap. They just want them to get lost in this love of celebrity almost, or human wisdom, which is what it comes down to. I find it sobering yet helpful to realize that even the first century church did not have this beautiful, carefree honeymoon period. There is no evidence in the New Testament to suggest this. What you see is Paul and others 
trying desperately to share the good news of the gospel, whilst trying to hold together a single family in unity and in love. Because that's what he wanted them to follow. He wanted them to follow the gospel. He wanted them to follow God. He wanted them to follow love. To choose love. And so I'm asking us this morning, what do we, or who do we follow before love? It doesn't have to be one of the ministers. It can be one of our ministries. Anything that we get territorial over or closed off to others. And I'm not going to stand here and tell anyone that they're doing that. This is an exercise in self-reflection. Because we want our ministries, we want our love, our actions to be nourishing others and not our own ego. Because that's what obedience to this passage is about. That's what obedience to love is. Love looks like unity. It looks like a family together. It looks like one body walking, working, acting. And if we're disobedient, why is that? We go back to that bird sitting precariously on that branch, afraid. Afraid of what might be coming next. Afraid of the cat that might jump out of the bushes. Or any other possible danger. But Corinth was not abandoned. Corinth was not shut out. Corinth did not lose its place. Corinth was still loved, still cared for, still embraced within the family. We come back to our passage, our second passage this morning with 1 John. It tells us to speak with boldness. To not be afraid because God is bigger than our fears. God is bigger than the shame that we might feel, our own consciousness, our emotions, our human wisdom. God is bigger than all of that. And it is in God that we trust, in love that we trust and that we must believe. And by this we will know that we are from the truth. And we'll reassure our hearts before God whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. The heart is, again, we think of emotion, but this is the the place of the conscience or self-knowledge or self-awareness. It says, beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. And receive from him whatever he asks. We can have boldness. And I love this idea of boldness. Like, again, I was looking up the kind of the root of the words, and it is this boldness talks of, again, this idea of freedom of speech. 
that you had these philosophers going around and they would speak with boldness because they would expect a response. And that's what Christ offers us, is the opportunity to speak with boldness, to stand before God, to have the Spirit in us leading us. But that's a boldness that isn't whispering behind doors, that isn't speaking in arrogance without, a, without listening to others, but one of freedom and humility that's attitude and desire is to reach unity together. And we are beloved. We are beloved. I love that word. I'm going to say it again. We are beloved. And if our hearts do not condemn us, we can have boldness. And we receive from God whatever we ask because we obey and do what pleases God. And this passage, it talks, when it talks about answers to prayer, it's in a present tense. It's with an awareness that God has already answered those prayers. There is already fruit growing. And I look around us and I see God's blessing amongst us. I see new people coming into membership. I see new people coming and getting to know us and, and wanting to be part of this community. I see people who have been committed to this place for years. With a love for this community that humbles me every day. I see a love for its ministers and for grieving over a loss. I see that fruit, I see God's blessing, God's spirit amongst us. And I want us to be encouraged because we do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be like that little bird sitting on the branch. We can come together in worship, not only in our morning services, but over lunch and in our church meetings. And as we go out from this place, we can hold on to our unity and speak boldly to one another with love. God is with us. God is amongst us. And if we abide in God's love, God will abide in us. And that love will begin to flow. And we will become known for our love for each other. And that's the way it should be. I don't want people coming to this church simply because of what we do or who stands up here on a Sunday. I want people coming to this church because this is a place that they experience love and feel connected and part of a whole. That they are loved and they know that they are beloved. I want us to be known for our belief in love and our trust in love.
because then we will be able to fully serve the world around us. Then we will have real impact. Then the actions that we do oh, just will speak volumes. For me, I love the part of the service where we come together and we speak with one voice. Like moments like communion. It was Ruth that first told me about this theology of the idea when we come to communion table that we are not only sharing with communion with the people who are in that room, but with everyone who's ever been at that table. When we sing and our voices lift up, it sounds great from up here. It moves me. And when we say every week the words of the Lord's Prayer together, with one desire, one heart, one attitude, And I wonder if perhaps actually that's how we finish or I finish this morning. Can we get the Lord's Prayer back up? And I would love for us to say it again together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Creator who set the universe into motion and chose us, all of humanity, to be your children. Word who set the universe into motion and walked with us, all of humanity, to be your disciples. Spirit who set the universe into motion and who is present with us now, all of humanity, as partners in the bringing forth of the kingdom, we come to you in prayer. We pray for our community here at Bloomsbury, for those that worship here on Sunday, for those that enjoy fellowship here on Tuesday lunchtime and evening, for those who attend small groups here in the building and out across the city, for partners like 223 and musicians who share their skill, for the upcoming plans of a new evening service, for those who walk through our open doors, for the life and breadth of a community striving to be your people in London, we pray. We sang of a love that seeks another's good, a love that yielding finds itself made new. We pray today for that love to bring unity with each other, to hold intention that unity, knowing that we might disagree at times and that we have different focuses, 
that loving one another is the perfect expression of unity and a witness to the world we are sent in to serve. Remind us that our ministry is loving one another and loving others, not the tasks we set ourselves. We pray for our city of London, for the upcoming local elections, the work of organisations like Citizens UK, for the planning of Pride in London, for our mayor and his office, for those running the marathon today, for the comings and goings of students, sex workers, tourists, professionals, rough sleepers, labourers, refugees, for the soul of a city who bursts with people of every nation, but who installs a hierarchy, an order, roles that must be played. For a city that the world has often looked to for leadership in times of strife, but whose place has slipped from the pedestal, we pray. We pray for our world, damaged by our presence, but who continues to breathe new life, for the joys of spring and the nourishment of rain, for those seeking to transform our harmful practices for the good of the world and have been tasked to steward, not rule. We pray for peace to fall on those lands harrowed by war, for Syria, for Yemen, for Palestine, for those that choose the sword over the olive branch, the bomb over dialogue, the illegal strike against lawfully governed action, we pray. We sang of a love that no force or fear can destroy. We pray for that love to cure the frightened, for the light of love brings such joy, for that love is where God is, for love is of God. For the parts of the world where darkness reigns, let the light of love break through. God, who is our perfect example of life in community, guide us this week to pray for all the communities we are part of, those immediate to us and those further afield. We pray for all of these things in your most holy name. Amen. So go and tell the world the good news, the good news of the Father who is neither male nor female but who is entirely love, of the Christ who lived with the marginalised and died and rose again for all, and of the Holy Spirit who dwells in the fabric of life and so dwells in each one of you. Amen.